Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm Director of ECFR. And this week's podcast is about the Red Sea. Two weeks ago, after two months of continued attacks by the Houthis against commercial shipping in the Red Sea, the United States, together with the UK and with the support of a handful of allies, launched airstrikes against the militant group. The Houthis claim that their attacks have been in solidarity with Gaza and have vowed to continue with them despite the US air campaign. And we know from the pummeling they took from Saudi Arabia over a decade that they have a high pain threshold. What are the Houthis' motivations? What is the potential for wider regional escalation? And what makes the Red Sea such a geopolitical tinderbox? We have an all-star cast to help us make sense of these things on the podcast today. Here to discuss it with me are Cinzia Bianco and Theo Murphy. Theo is director of ECFR's Africa program, and Chintia is a visiting fellow at ECFR who works uh, particularly closely on the Arabian Peninsula and the Gulf. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Um, why don't we start with a bit of context to the current crisis? Uh, Chintia, can you tell us uh, briefly who the Houthis are, what's motivated their attacks, uh, what people need to know to understand what's going on in the Red Sea? So the Houthis are an indigenous group um, to Yemen. They are also a militia. Uh, they've been very well armed for years, and they've been in fighting to basically get control over Yemen for years. Uh, a smaller war with Saudi Arabia in 2009, and then a bigger one uh, after the Arab Spring, when basically around 2014, they um, sort of leveraged the chaos that was ongoing in Yemen after the ousting of longtime president and took over Sana'a. And the reaction from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in a joint coalition was a long-standing bombing campaign, which lasted years with the support of the US and the UK. And after uh, that many years, uh, now the situation is that the Houthis are actually still in control of the capital of Yemen, Sana'a, and a good part of central Yemen and northern Yemen, where they originate from. Um, they are also in negotiations with Saudi Arabia to resolve the issue uh, through diplomatic means and basically uh, coming out of this war as victorious because they're getting uh, a official um, support uh, for uh, control over, over Sana'a and large parts of Yemen. They have always been supported armed and um, and sort of also strategically directed uh, from uh, Iran. And so they have been also involved into the latest round of escalation in the region after the war in Gaza. And they claim they're attacking uh, international and especially Israeli ships that transit through the Bab al-Mandab, the Strait of the Red Sea that they control, because they are protesting against uh, Israeli attacks on Gaza. So I'd like to go to Theo a bit more about the Red Sea. But before we do that, there are two things you, you uh, raised, which I think would be interesting to probe a bit more uh, deeply. One is, you know, the nature of this group. What are their ideological uh, beliefs and aspirations? Why are they doing this? And secondly, the, the relationship with Iran and whether, I mean, they're obviously very 
uh, much supported by Iran, but to what extent does Iran control what they're doing? So the group's ideology officially is is Zaidi, um, and that is a branch of Shiism, uh, the same sort of Islam to which Iran uh, subscribes, and actually that Iran leads regionally and globally. And so there is this ideological affinity between the Houthis and, and Iran, but there is actually more of a geopolitical affinity in the sense that, like Hezbollah, uh, the Houthis are a militia, a non-state armed group um, that is uh, sort of willing to subvert uh, the uh, the order and, and the status quo. Um, and in that sense, really responds very well to Iran's overall strategic aim, which is to subvert the status quo in favor of uh, minority groups that are uh, very well armed and ideologically very fierce and sort of aligned to Iran. However, it is difficult to determine exactly what kind of, what level of control Iran has over the Houthis. For example, we know that without Iranian support, they can hardly um, sort of have access to uh, drones and uh, more advanced missiles. But we know that over the years, the Houthis have developed uh, capacity to build some of uh, these sort of lower um, effectiveness uh, weapons uh, locally in Yemen. Um, then we also know that they rely a lot on Iran, Iranian intelligence, for example, to know exactly the coordinates of their targets, including on some of the ships that they have targeted in this latest round of uh, this latest crisis. But at the same time, they also have their own sort of more rudimental means uh, um, to get their own intelligence, some rudimental radars. Some of those come from Iran. Some of those uh, come from uh, um, actually the relics of the Soviet Union. So it is quite difficult to uh, paint a specific picture, but we can say that Iranian support is fundamental. So Thea, can you talk a bit about why the Red Sea is such a big deal in, in global terms? Yeah, thanks, Mark. I think uh, if we if we scroll out a little bit, we'll see that the Red Sea is one of th- three top critical sea lanes the world over. Uh, the first being the Malacca Strait, which uh, is the gateway to traffic in and out of China. So that's important for obvious reasons. Um, and then we have the Panama Canal, more on the U.S. side. The Red Sea is the third, but it has a dubious distinction in that it's clustered an incredible amount of interstate tension within a very tight geography. And this is something that uh, those of us working on the west side of the Red Sea, the African side, um, were were very concerned about since quite early on. Um, Threats can manifest in different specific ways. So we look historically, it was piracy, from Somaliland, which you can trace back to Somalia's uh, destability. And now Houthis is the most recent thing. But what we thought looking at this as policymakers was that the interstate tensions between the countries competing for dominance in this space was actually the far greater threat and something that, that could explode at some point. Great. So um, I'm a, a victim of this latest thing. I don't want to trivialize the discussion, but I ordered a, a chair from a London company a few weeks ago. I got a long email yesterday with a lot of details about the, the situation in the Red Sea, explaining that the ship which my chair is on is being diverted around the world. And I think that is a, uh, a symptom of a much bigger crisis. As, as, as you said, Theo, this is one of the, the, the key 
um, routes for a lot of uh, commercial shipping around the world. Um, and the main uh, role of kind of global superpowers like the US is about um, keeping open these sea lanes of, of, of communication and making sure that the global economy can function. So the fact that all of these ships are being diverted and taking several weeks uh, extra to, to get round is, is both something which is likely to, to com- uh, create a supply shock in different parts of the world could add to um, uh, problems in, in a already slightly weak global economy um can you talk a bit more uh, both of you about why you think the the us and the uk um response was so late and and so limited given how disruptive this is to the global economy some commentators have called america's strikes against the houthis uh, therapeutic because uh instead of solving the problem they they mainly uh, seem to, to to make U.S. policymakers feel a bit better about themselves and uh, show that they're doing something. But um, when I was in, in in sorry, I shouldn't say this, but when I was in Davos last week talking to lots of governments, very few people in the Middle East thought that this would actually have any kind of long term effect on on the Houthis' ability to to um, to disrupt uh, uh, traffic going uh, in and out of the Red Sea. Yeah, I mean. Exactly like you said, Mark, um, we have to keep in mind that the Houthis have been subjected to this kind of bombing and even sort of uh, wider bombing uh, since at least 2015. So this is seven years of the Saudis and the Emiratis striking on basically the same targets that the Americans and the Brits are targeting right now um, in the hope that, uh, that the Houthis would run out of stock and would stop firing missiles at them in that case. Um, they, we know, we know they've tried to hit uh, airports in the UAE, uh, um, numerous, uh, a number of critical infrastructures in Saudi Arabia, even schools, and so on and so forth. So after seven years with the Saudis, with American intelligence, they came to the conclusion that they had to resolve the crisis diplomatically because they didn't want to go all in in a full-on war against Yemen and invasion. Um, So that's the skepticism that a lot of folks in the Middle East have have shared with you, um, that uh, these kind of strikes, even though they are uh, sort of on on very um, specific targets and, you know, the the American intelligence is, is quite good, um, that they are not going to stop the Houthis because they have developed a a number of ways to smuggle uh, components in from Iran. And also they have developed local capabilities to restock. Although I have to say that, you know, we we have to recognize at the same time that since the first um, sort of larger uh, strikes uh, on January 11th, the the Houthis do not have as many drones, for example, and do not have as many radars. So their capability to hit ships has declined. Their their capabilities have been degraded to a certain extent. That's the, very much the language that American policymakers were using about degrading material capabilities, I think was the exact phrase they used. Theo, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I think in terms of, um, of, of global trade, it's a nuisance, not a crisis, right? Um, the the trade the sea trade can find another way can go around uh, the cape of good hope we're not under the same logistical snarlups that we had during the covid period so there's a little bit of a slack in the system as well um which i think it's you know i think it's manageable there's one country that's an exception to that which is egypt and um they're experiencing already 
very, very dramatic economic straits um, and any loss in revenues from passage through the Suez Canal uh, really is not helping them at all. But in generally, uh, I think I think we can weather it. That's why, as I was saying earlier, you know, I do think if you want to come back to this, um, it's this is the Houthi story is more demonstrating to us what could potentially happen that it'd be much worse in this Red Sea space. But we, we can come to that later in the conversation if you like. So one of the things which um, seems to be uh, very much on the minds of a lot of the people from the Arab world in Davos, particularly, I heard this from a senior Saudi person, was actually, you know, if you're not going to go in and invade and literally take absolutely everything out, then what you need to do is remove the pretext for doing this. And that means solving the, the situation in, in Gaza um, and making sure there's a ceasefire there. Um, I was very struck by how cautious the Saudis were about all of these things. They're urging restraint. They're being very, very careful. Can you talk a bit more, um, Chintia, about how the Saudis have gone from being uh, the number one enemies of the Houthis, desperate to get other people involved in in bombing them and and fighting against them to being these voices of moderation. Yeah, absolutely. For a few years, the Saudis thought that there was a military solution to the conflict in Yemen and to their Houthi problem. And then when they uh, also realized, unless you want to go all in, it's it's unlikely that you're going to find a military solution. That's where they decided to go the diplomatic route. And for example, in their process of de-escalation with Iran since 2019, which led to a deal signed in Beijing in March 2023, their priority, their first priority um, was absolutely to get uh, Iran to basically commit to pressuring the Houthis to stop any uh, missile or drone attack into Saudi territory or against Saudi targets. And this has worked because the Houthis do respond to Iranian pressure and they have halted um, their uh, attacks into Saudi territory. Uh, So the Saudis are now thinking this is the way you need to deal with this. You need to deal with this through diplomacy and ultimately also by engaging directly with, with Iran. And that's obviously quite difficult from a a Western perspective. Uh, But at the same time, I would argue that this is why the US and the UK have also been um, sort of a bit uh, more uh, cautious in terms of their uh, strikes against uh, against the Houthis and and Yemeni targets in general, because they also don't want to be sucked into uh, a wider conflagration and, and, and a wider escalation against Iran directly. And this is a very real risk because the crisis in the Red Sea is happening in the context of not just the war in Gaza, but tit for tat um, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria, dozens of attacks against American personnel, military personnel in Syria and Iraq, also uh, some episodes, um, bombings and attacks inside Iran that uh, have been attributed uh, by some in the in the IRGC uh, to Israel. So they need to thread very carefully. So, um- I want to move to Theo to talk about the the Red Sea later, but before we do that, maybe we can just have one more round on this idea of the regional escalation. Because you know, for a long time, people were worried that there could be a regional escalation. Now we have one in all the different theatres you described. Um, but the consensus um, amongst a lot of the governments I've been speaking to around the Arab world and and uh, and US policymakers is that 
the Red Sea in some ways is is the the least dangerous of those different theatres that you're talking about. That if American personnel get killed in Iraq or Syria, that they the US will be forced to respond, and that could have a, a kind of major escalatory potential. If Israel moves into Lebanon in a big way, um, it'll be very hard for for Iran to allow Hezbollah to be uh, wiped out. Um, but the, they, uh, there's more of a sense that the Red Sea could maybe be a bit more contained compared to some of these other other theatres. And um, therefore, um, people are kind of concerned that, the, that there is a ceasefire as quickly as possible, because if there isn't one, then the danger of escalation and of losing control of it obviously grows every day, and there, there are more things that could happen. But the, of all the different fronts, the, the Red Sea is, is maybe the most containable. Would you agree with that assessment? I completely agree. I think the Red Sea front uh, is the most costly economically, uh, but the, less, the least costly uh, militarily and geopolitically. I don't think there we're going to have a domino effect from uh, uh, even an escalation of violence against the Houthis or, or in Yemen, but we would definitely be paying a higher price for a continuation of the crisis in the Red Sea that we would pay economically for an escalation in Lebanon or, or Iraq, right? Because so much of global trade is involved there. And that's why my books and your chairs are going to be delayed for a couple of weeks more. Okay, Theo. So let's go to this bigger question around the the, the wider Red Sea uh, strategy. You've been thinking about that a lot. Um, you have a commentary coming out on our website looking at, um, uh, at the at these questions. Do you want to um, talk a bit more about about how you see the kind of bigger picture regional questions around the sea? Yeah, I mean, what what we've what we've observed there over the years, starting back in 2014, is that um, it's it's a site of of intense interstate competition, and that competition is driven in large part by the Gulf powers on the east side um, of the Red Sea, competing with each other, but also competing with powers that are a little bit further removed, like Turkey, Iran. And that, that's kind of the first concentric circle of actors. But you can then spread that concentric circle out a little bit further um, and you get other players coming in, such as Russia and China, which complicate it. And the dynamic is, is, is as such that the competitive drive is among those actors, but the locus of that competition where it plays out is on the African side, the Horn of Africa side. And those countries are also in competition and at daggers with each other quite often. So what they'll do is arbitrage and instrumentalize that interest. On the African side, it's Somalia, Somaliland, Sudan. Yeah, that's right. It's basically, we would say, all the littoral states. So you would have Eritrea, you would have Somalia, you would have Ethiopia, even though it doesn't technically um, abut onto the ocean. Uh, and then Somalia as well. And of course, Egypt is part of Africa in this case, plays on both sides. So what you might have, for example, is uh, Eritrea and Ethiopia, long time at daggers. Uh, the United Arab Emirates will have an, a new interest driven by events to set up a, a base uh, in Eritrea. And one of the events would be the war in Yemen. They'll set up that base Eritrea will then arbitrage and harness the interest of the Emiratis to strengthen itself in its conflict with the Ethiopians. Then, when there's another conflict between the Emiratis and, say, the Qataris, now we're looking back 
to the GCC conflict, which people might have forgot in 2017. That means that any move by one side in that GCC conflict is seen by the other as upping the ante. So there's, they feel a need to respond. And when they, when they have that need to respond, that drive, on the Horn of Africa side, you'll, you'll find ready recipients for offers of another base to balance things out. It's more complicated still because sometimes it's driven by a security need on the Gulf side. It's like I said, the Yemen war, but other times it's commercial interests. So the Emiratis are also building a very interesting network of ports on the Horn of Africa side, you know, which is definitely more part of a kind of geoeconomic vision of this region and how they'll connect to the Emiratis. But it's very unclear often what exactly is going on. And so more often than not, the actual intention versus um, the construed intention can be misread, which contributes more to this escalation. And this, again, this is just describing that first concentric circle. If we layer on the Russians and the Chinese on top of it, you have a whole other layer of complexity and more space for tensions to be inflamed. Do you want to layer that on? I mean, what sorts of things? So you're talking about building naval bases, commercial ports, listening posts. What kinds of things are being done, particularly by the Russians and the Chinese? The Russians and Chinese come in in a slightly different way. Um, I think the, the, the Russians saw this as part of their push into Africa, which I think really scaled up in sort of 2015, 2016. And then 2017, they actually made a bid for the port of Sudan, Port Sudan. And, and, that, and that made a lot of people very, very anxious. Um, so that's less linked to Russia's competition uh, in the Gulf with Gulf players. That's not a big play, but rather in Russia's interest in, in Sudan. China is in Djibouti, and there's a, a tiny square of real estate there, which is overlaid with um, ports held by all kinds of countries, France, U.S., and the rest. And for, for China watchers, you know, I think this is a bit, um, there's a lot of controversy about what it actually means. You know, is this the, is the beginning of plan of the Chinese Navy's uh, push for a blue water capacity, so for them to really force project much beyond their near abroad? Or is this a case rather of the flag, in this case, the Navy following China's commercial interests? So that there, that would mean that there's enough, com enough concentration of Chinese commercial interests in the Horn of Africa that the Navy needs to come and back it up behind, right? So that's kind of a whole different level there. Okay, so lots of people playing into this, um, dangers of escalation, but also potentially you could have more stakeholders if we wanted to have a de-escalation. One of the things that people were talking about um, in the margins of Davos was whether the Chinese could put pressure to bear on the Iranians to, to kind of quieten the, Houthi, the Houthis down and whether that might actually be another way of, of trying to, to uh, um, get things back onto a, a more stable footing um, because their uh, commercial interests are very much at stake. Um, to what extent do you feel that one could have a, a, a positive role from some of these external players? I mean, this is a fascinating question. Um, what, I think, you know, what is, I, as you said, the, the Americans have been trying to get um, the, the Chinese more involved. 
but it's been fascinating to see how much the Chinese have been hands off and actually even publicly saying that the only way to resolve this crisis is through a ceasefire, although their commercial interests are obviously much involved. It seems so far that they're happy to see the Americans more bogged down and, and maybe then later consider uh, trying to intervene. Theo? So look, I don't, I don't think the Chinese have any interest to help right now on the Houthi issue. And that's, that's because the Houthis are managing to link um, their attacks to the struggle in Gaza. And the struggle in Gaza plays very well into a narrative battle between the global south and the global north. So I think the Chinese are quite happy to let the Americans carry the can on that one. The Americans, of course, I think are approaching this as them protecting a kind of global commons in the Red Sea. So this is a policing, a political action uh, against the Houthis, right? But if we were looking at the situation I was describing with the interstate tensions that have a sort of, are on a trajectory to explode once again at some point in the future, one should have a political solution or a political mechanism to manage those tensions. And I think there, there could be some interesting potential for um, a Chinese-U.S. cooperation. There's an attempt by the region to manage itself. The Saudis stood up something called the Red Sea Council after they pushed away European efforts to do something similar, to create a kind of multilateral chapeau over this space. But the problem is that the regional hegemons, Saudi, also Egypt to a sense, are, um, are party priests, so they're, they're part of the conflict themselves. When they try to bring everyone together, they fail because of the tensions within the region. So this Red Sea Council is not fully inclusive, and you do need to get everyone around the table. In the old days, in a kind of more unipolar era, you might have seen the U.S. being able to do this and having the appetite to do this, to have the clap to bring everyone together. But I think what you would need these days would be cooperation between the U.S. and China. So between them, they would have both um, the combined weight and the relationships, particularly since China's been building up interesting capital in the Gulf to bring this together. This is a longer-term plan. Um, for, for addressing a more deep-seated tension within the Red Sea, which could be considered, perhaps, if people want to think about this in a global commons kind of way, sort of as they do around climate. Okay, so we're ending on a on a positive note with a constructive um, uh, uh, conclusion, but it does sound like the consensus here is that the immediate problems are not going to be solved within the Red Sea, that, that we have to wait until there's a wider um, solution to the, the the war in Gaza before um, uh, the uh, Red Sea uh, is quietened in the short term. Although in the longer term, it sounds like we need some, some creative diplomacy. There's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Chintia? So I've gone back to a book um, that another visiting fellow of ECFR has written, which is called uh, Yemen in Crisis, The Road to War, and it's by Helen Lackner. Uh, and it really gives you all the tools that you need to understand how we got there, uh, at least from a Yemeni perspective. Fantastic. What about you, Thea? So very, very apropos of the subject, I'm reading uh, To Rule the Waves by Bruce Jones. And it's just a wonderful tour of kind of naval history from the end of the colonial area up to up till now. Highly recommended and very relevant. Fantastic. Well, We'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. 
If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do head to whatever platform you use to download it and subscribe to future editions. And while you're there, it would be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating. But for now, from Chintia, Theo, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast was Anand Sunda, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Sarats. <laughs>